This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me. And I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Sister Josephine Garrett. She is a sister of the Holy Family of Nazareth, which is based in the Diocese of Tyler, Texas. Look, I really wanted to speak with Sister not only because she had an incredible vocation journey. I mean, she's a convert like me, and now she's a religious sister but she's also a counselor and works in vocations ministry. And you all know, if you've been following the show since last week, that I'm concerned about what's happening in our seminaries. So I want to speak with her about vocations and priestly formation today, as well as the importance of mental health of seminarians. I mean, if they're looking at the mental health of these guys, are there indications perhaps that certain things might make them not fit? to be priests with the kind of authority priests have. So we're going to really dive into that with Sister, and especially also talking about the dangers of celebrity to the priesthood and to seminarians. So stick around for that conversation. And by the way, I've got a note about last week's show and my conversation with Father Bruce Wilkinson. If you didn't listen to it yet, and you should, come on now, you should, Father Bruce was asked to leave St. Meinrad Seminary in Indiana back in the 70s. America reached out to the seminary for comment, but hasn't heard back yet. If they do hear back, they'll be sure to give the seminary an opportunity to respond. Speaking of America Media, who I'm doing this podcast with, they are committed to hosting real conversations at the intersection of the church and the world. They do it every day, online, in print, in podcasts, in videos. And the best way to access all of that content and to support my show, the Gloria Purvis Podcast, is to get a digital subscription to America. How do you do that? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe. The link is in the show notes. I was thinking about all my interactions on social media, and I was thinking about how Catholics respond to these movements for justice when they pop up. How do we respond to... Black Lives Matter, for instance? How do we respond to people's calls for justice in response to what happened with George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or Ahmaud Arbery? I remember interacting with white Catholic parents that were in a serious panic over their children attending the protests. I mean, they were at their wits' ends. They did not want their children involved in anything Black Lives Matter related. None of the protests, none of it, you know, because Marxism. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh, but I just was like, okay. And I and I was telling these parents as I was interacting with them on social media is, look, you can tell your kids Marxist stuff, that they're Marxist and they're this all day long, but guess what? That's not going to feed their desire for justice. That is not going to stop them 
from being involved. They witnessed something horrible and their inner person wanted justice. And if you don't have something to feed that need for justice, and it's a good thing. It's a good, it's a good impulse that these children have, that everybody has that sees a gross injustice and wants to do something about it. But I'm telling you, the approach of no, 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 no simply isn't going to make people stay home. The question is, what does the church have to offer them? I had been doing a lot of research and I was looking at the church during abolition. No bishop in the church spoke out in support of abolition. You know, I I was looking at the civil rights movement, the history of it, and it wasn't like we were at the forefront. In fact, a lot of our words were around, you know, people being slow about it and taking their time and not being these rabble rousers or agitators or things like that. And I'm like, you, you can't tell a people when they're being treated unjustly to just slow down, you know, be more, you know, you're moving too fast or you have to take things more slowly. Your head's not the one being bashed in. So nobody's going to listen to you. It's almost like we want a peace without working for justice. And Pope Paul VI says, if you want peace, you have to work for justice. And so that has to be our question. We can't simply be telling people from the sidelines, hey, the way you're doing it over there is wrong and not have something else to offer. And I tell you what, I think what the answer is, is for us to be involved and use the lens of our faith to be involved and not be afraid of being involved in these movements, to be among the people who are suffering and walking with them and suffering with them and seeking justice with them as well. So to all those parents, I was like, your kids are going to keep doing something. The question is, why don't we have something for them to do? For the cause of justice. And they didn't have an answer other than they were just going to keep telling their kids, don't get involved in these things because of Marxism. And I kept telling them that you could do that, but it's not going to be effective because these children have a need to do something when they see their neighbor being so, so terribly treated, so unjustly treated, being harmed. And then the other question is, why didn't we <laughs> have that impulse like they did? Why is our impulse to, just to say, no, no, not that, not that, not that, without realizing we have to have something else to offer? So listeners, that should be something that we think about. When we hear people saying, no, you can't do that because of this, that, and the other, the question is then, what are we offering and what can the church offer? And are we willing to walk with those people? And you know what? We should be the church of yes. We should be encouraging people to act affirmatively, positively, instead of always, no, 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 no. (laughs) You know, we are the church of the good news, right? We're come to set the captives free. And what are we doing to do that? How are we doing that? You know, I remember reading an article recently where basically this priest was saying that Black people were heroic basically for accepting the beatdown you know, romanticizing oppression and how we dealt with oppression instead of speaking clearly against the evil of that oppression and supporting the Black people's movement for civil rights, you know, and saying, no, you know, they they should not have had dogs turned loose on them. They should not have had hoses turned loose on them and, and not making the, you know, our accepting and dealing with the abuse, the heroic thing, 
you know? So we have to look at how we are engaging. Is our is our answer always to tell the person that's being abused, you know, stiff off her lip, <laughs> you know, critiquing how they choose to react to their abuse rather than, you know, saying, yes, we affirm you, we understand, and we seek justice with you. And this indeed was the great evil done, and we are opposed to that. We need to walk with people. We need to have that yes. We need to remind them of their great dignity. We need to remind them that their desire for justice is rooted in something good. And we can help direct that. We can help walk with that. Let's be the church of yes (laughs) for those who are suffering rather than church of wait, hold up. Not sure about that. Let's be the church of yes. Let's be the ones that bring the good news. Let's be the ones to remind them that the truth The gospel is here to set the captives free. Coming up next, my conversation with Sister Josephine Garrett. My guest is Sister Josephine Garrett. She's a sister of the Holy Family of Nazareth and a licensed counselor. Sister Josephine, so glad to have you. I'm so happy to be here with you, Gloria. I'm so excited. <laughs> Look, let me tell you something. I think somehow we must be related. I mean, you're a native Texan. You too mm-hmm. are a convert. And you worked in the mortgage business like I did. I have yes. roots in Texas because I have so much family in Texas. I just feel like somehow... It has to be. It, it has to be. <laughs> I mean, who else could you talk to about a GFE, a TIL, <laughs> and a right of decision, and they know what you're talking about? And they know and what it means. They know what what it means and their convert like you. I mean, so, you know, I just feel like we have too much in common. But um, sister, one of the things that I've been noticing is like, um, we'd been talking about seminaries. We've been talking about what kind of things need to happen in seminaries, but I don't think we often talk about the mental health aspect of it. Could you help us understand like what it is to be a licensed counselor, what mental health is? Because some people just think that's getting a spiritual director Mm. and that that's sufficient. Can you talk about the difference there? Sure. And that kind of, the more I grow as a counselor, as a mental health counselor, the more I get concerned with like creating a dichotomy between spirituality and mental health and Mm -hmm. acting like the spirituality is all that's needed to address mental health concerns. So mental health concerns are clinical concerns. And I wouldn't try to only pray about my diabetes, I would go see a clinician, <laughs> right? And so very good point. It's, simil- it's similar with mental health. So I get very concerned with that. So the difference is, you know, what mental health is and as a the type of counselor that I am, we operate from a wellness model. So we always want to be leveraging our strengths, improving our strengths and skills to better be able to cope with life as it comes, you know, and mm-hmm. to kind of establish protective patterns, relationships what have you, things that will be protective as we face difficulties to reduce the likelihood of the onset and continuation of diagnosable mental health disorders. You know, I think that's so beautiful. You say, you know, if I have diabetes, I'm actually not going to just pray about it. I'm going to see somebody who can help me with right, it. Right. And the idea that you can have mental health that's also protective is it's really a point that maybe people don't think about. And, you know, I've been considering the pandemic, the trauma of seeing someone murdered on video, and all the things that people are probably experiencing right now. And 
I had spoken with a lady that was telling me that her mother, she wanted her mother to get counseling and her mother felt like doing so would be being unfaithful to Jesus, that Mm -hmm. whatever she's going through with her serious depression must be a cross that the Lord has given her. And all she needs to do is redouble her efforts in prayer. Meanwhile, she's not bathing, not going out of the house, not taking care of herself, often unable to get out of bed. Mm -hmm. And now, mind you, this person's not Catholic. Mm -hmm. However, this notion that this is just some cross that the Lord has given you and you just need to bear it and pray on it. Could you talk about, you know, how that can actually be quite a dangerous uh, perspective? Yeah, it's incredibly dangerous. And even just listening to the severity of those symptoms, it's incredibly dangerous. And so I think it's important for us to not sort of create compartments with the Lord. And so as a counselor, I can assure you that the sacred heart of Jesus is present in healing in the counseling room. Mm. And so in a sense, when we cut ourselves off from those blessings and resources, we can become a hindrance to what God, Christ, the Holy Spirit would like to bring about in our lives. And so, yes, it's incredibly dangerous to persist in symptoms, especially severe ones, dangerous for ourselves, dangerous for the people that we share our lives with, dangerous for our communities, um, for those things to exacerbate because I can start to harm myself. I can start to harm others. It can spread. And meanwhile, there are resources that are actually blessings that can become an integrated part of our spiritual life. Mm -hmm. And so I pray before sessions, you know, as a counselor, Mm -hmm. there have been times where I was sitting in sessions and just kind of in my mind, like called on the intercession of the Blessed Virgin so that I may hear more clearly. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm not sure how we arrived at compartmentalizing mental health from a holistic sense of ourselves and our understanding of ourselves as um, persons created in the image of God. But like you said, I like your word that you used danger because there is a grave danger in that. Yeah, I am. I think sometimes there's even a a worry sometimes about Mm -hmm. even going to see someone to talk about mental health issues, to talk about if you're depressed or even anger or hopelessness or, you know, the range of things. Or in in some cases, you do have people that go through mania, right? Mm -hmm. And realizing that's not healthy either. What would be the signs that you would say someone has in their life that perhaps they should go consider talking with a counselor with a mental health professional? So I like to take, it's like I call it kind of like a three-pronged approach Mm -hmm. when I'm teaching ministry leaders. Because a lot of times, especially like people who are very devoted to their faith, it won't be the counselor that encounters them first. It'll be someone who they know in ministry. And so anytime I get to talk to ministry leaders, I'll offer them a three-pronged approach to say, if these three things are going on, Mm -hmm. then it's maybe a good time to make a referral. Mm. And it can be scary. We have a tendency, this is something I notice with us just as as, uh, human beings. We can sometimes prefer the familiarity of a difficulty over the unknown that might include relief from that difficulty. Mm. Because even though this is hard and difficult, it's what I know. And so in a sense, there's more a sense of a safety there for me than if I kind of ventured out into the unknown, even though the unknown might have opportunities for me to experience relief. Mm. And so I offer that just from a perspective of compassion for those who may be struggling with mental health illness symptoms 
and be afraid or worried to go for treatment because of all the unknowns that come with that and the perceived pain that can come with having to kind of take the lid off that, which we've spent so much time keeping a tight lid on. So I want to offer that first just as from the perspective of compassion that I can see that. This three-pronged approach on when to refer, okay? So the first thing is like duration. Have I simply had a bad day or have I had a bad six months, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to look at duration. Has this been going on for an extended period of time, for weeks and for months? Then you want to look at severity, the severity of the distress. So am I getting into moderate to severe distress? And then like, where is the distress occurring? So what's being impacted? Is it my sense of myself? Is it impacting my relationships with my family and my friends, maybe my service and ministry? Or is it also impacting my work commitments and my academic commitments? So if I have duration and I have a certain severity of distress and I have some negative impact in my academic commitments, work commitments, personal relationships, professional relationships, if all those three criteria are met, it's probably a good time to refer. You know, I'm so glad we're talking about this also considering what happened with Naomi Osaka during the Mm. French Open and how she said ahead of time during the French Open, look, I will play, but I cannot and will not be doing those press things because they depress me. And and then I saw an interview with her. She was so wooden. And Mm. I just thought this girl is struggling with depression and I hope she has help. And I'm also hoping she put a face to people that people can be enormously successful and so struggle with mental health issues. And and then I was kind of saddened that the French Open kind of, by tweeting things like when the other people did press, they tweeted like they get the lesson. They understand the point of it. And so she finally just said, you know what? I'm just going to withdraw altogether. I'm just, I'm not going to play. And I think they fined her $15,000 for missing her first press event. But in terms of setting those kinds of boundaries... Um, and letting people see that you can be successful, you can be at the top of your game, top of whatever you're in, and still struggle with this. I think even Michael Phelps talked about struggling with uh, depression, and he was that massively successful Olympic swimmer. Swimmer, yeah. So does the face of mental health struggles always look the same publicly? You know what I mean? Some people would not expect people who are so successful to have these kinds of struggles. And see, I would say that that level of success and media exposure pressure become indicators for like if I had a client who had that level of success, that level of exposure, that level of pressure, Mm -hmm. I would almost be putting together a preventative plan Mm -hmm. because I know just from like understanding mental health that those are indicators for potentially exacerbating mental health. I want to comment on the young lady who's a tennis player. I'm I'm so grateful that mm-hmm. she had the integrity to withdraw herself. And I was concerned with the language that almost was like treating her like property. Oh. She is a tennis player. She's responsible for the game. Right. And this sense that she owed them her face and mm. her voice was troubling to me. And so it's something I continue to reflect on. Mm. What is our duty? in our ministries, what is owed, what is just. And in her case, what was just was to be a good and well-prepared tennis player. So this leads me then to think about the danger of celebrity for Mm -hmm. clergies, priests, bishops, cardinals. Can you talk about, I'm not asking you to give examples (laughs) of of folks. Okay, let's just get that. 
clear. I'm not asking. And I mean, this could be a total hypothetical what? that you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, but I mean, you know, because some people talk to me about, oh, I wanted this and I wanted that. I said, beware the desire for celebrity. Hmm. Okay, beware the desire for celebrity. Is that what you're seeking? Or are you seeking to be faithful to Christ? Because if you're seeking to be faithful to Christ, be ready to take up your cross and hmm. be, you know, misunderstood. But if you're seeking to be like, you know, loved and adored and have all these people follow you, then I'm concerned. But what kind of, just from your, as a clinician, as a, as a counselor, what might be some of the dangers to a vocation if they end up in positions of celebrity? Oh, Gloria. Okay. I'm trying to think <laughs> where to start. I'm trying to think where to start because, okay, I'm going to start at the, vo- like how I've seen our church view religious vocations, priestly vocations, and as a convert, like kind of coming into the culture of the church and seeing some of this. Right. And I didn't see it in my own experience growing up Baptist. I didn't see it as much. I did see it some, but there's this sense like, and we do have a hierarchy. We absolutely have a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Like along the hierarchy, there's various levels of authority and trusted. Mm-hmm. And I know we have a tendency to look at this hierarchy as like bottom up or top down. Yeah. But I see it more like everyone is sitting around a table and they all have different roles and different levels of authority, but it's still a table. Mm-hmm. But what I noticed in our church is that it wasn't happening like that often. And so there was already kind of like a misunderstanding of how authority works, a misunderstanding of how accountability works, a misunderstanding of the authority entrusted to the laity to hold the pastors in their local church accountable in charity. And so with that, all that kind of woundedness in our church already in place. You know, I had someone say to me the other day, whenever I'm having a disagreement with someone, I try to see them in person. And so I was having a disagreement with someone. And I said, you got to either come over to You don't have that far to reach across to smack them if they say something wrong. That and, right? Um, yeah. See, now you know. Yeah, right? <laughs> it was really like, come mm-hmm. close so I can really <laughs> right? take care of yeah, right. Um So I called them up and I said, either come to the convent, I can come to your house, you can come up to the office, whatever you like. And they came to the office and we really just got into a over an hour conversation about our experience with faith. And this person is a, a member of the laity. And so was saying like, I've never felt able to criticize or correct my pastor. And I was like, this is a deep wound in the church that we don't feel like we can all sit down at the table and hold each other accountable in charity and run alongside one another in the building of the kingdom. So when we already have that, we have kind of like this hijacking of the beauty that can come when we're all in virtuous and charitable relationship with each other. When we add on top of that celebrity, it feels like a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. I happen to know a priest when he had gotten on Twitter and he has a friend that had a lot of followers. And I started to see a change in him because he became very obsessed with trying to do things to get more and more followers, more and more followers. And then I saw a change in how he tweeted, right? It started to be more combat tweeting, I guess, Mm -hmm. and and a lot of critique of this and that. And I was like, this just doesn't sound like this is good for you as a priest. So long story short, we no longer follow each other on Twitter. (laughs) But I still pray for him because I see now the danger and what happened to him, you know, became more about performing on Twitter and um, showing one's 
I don't know, orthodoxy on Twitter at the expense of other people. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, how is that going to be helpful and pastoral? And then also the kind of egging on he was getting from all these anonymous people that, oh, Father, you're so wonderful, and this, that, and the other. And I thought, oh, gosh, Lord, let's pray for our priests and clergy that are maybe enthralled by the celebrity and believing that that is the way and the only way for them to minister to people. But then it made me think, well, what happens, you know, are there things that they can be seen in seminary, you know, in terms of mental health for guys that maybe are indicators that having roles of authority, being in positions of prominence don't fit with their kind of psychological profile? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so I know. Yeah. So I will go to that in a second. Just like, how do we look to see? Because again, with those two aspects, the first one, there is something going on in our church where we tend to struggle to see like our priests as people who we can hold accountable in charity. Oh yeah. And like, like ongoing conversations in our local church. I'm sorry. Like Twitter, you know, it's social media. Yeah. It has goods. But I have a feeling at my particular judgment, Jesus and I aren't going to talk a whole lot about my tweets. We're going to talk a whole lot about what I did in the encounters, the concrete encounters of my daily life. Well, but sister, that's because your tweets aren't hateful and don't, don't inflame. <laughs> fair. Don't, that's your, fair. Your tweets are not, you know, tweeting out a bunch of lies and stuff like that. I have a feeling <laughs> a whole bunch of folks going to have to account for social media stuff, you know? That's fair. But what I would add to it, though, is I think those people who are using Twitter in that manner, I think there's probably a lot going on as well in the concrete life. But actually not a lot of activity. I think sometimes the work of the concrete life and the daily life for those who are using Twitter, social media in that manner, I would have a, a hypothesis, an educated guess that there's probably been almost like an abandonment to the duties in the daily life. Mm. Because the sensation, the sense of I'm accomplishing something with all of this because I've garnered all these followers, you know, I'm able to be effective with raising money with this media sensation. It's very enticing because it's far more immediately gratifying than the ongoing daily work in the local church. We'll be back in a minute. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. So one of the things, um, so I, I am secretly on TikTok. I'm not going to say what my thing is on TikTok. And I'd come across. I'm going to troll you on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I have not been nuts enough to do any kind of video. Okay. I don't have any videos, but I laugh <laughs> at stuff and I watch stuff. And then I happened into seems like there's a whole community about narcissistic personality disorder okay. on, on TikTok. And I'm, I'm not suggesting people go, because none of these people are counselors, by the way. Um, <laughs> okay. None of these people are counselors. But it made me think about some of the things that they were saying and then some of the things that I've seen in some celebrity priests. Mm-hmm. And I thought, do they 
check for these kinds of things in the seminary? And by the way, can you help people understand what narcissistic personality disorder is before we get into talking about it? Yeah. So in the manual that counselors use to understand, diagnose all kinds of mental health disorders, it's a very big book called a DSM. There's a section of the book for personality disorders. And there's actually 10 different types of personality disorders. Mm -hmm. The way that it's different from, say, like anxiety or depression or OCD, those things are not as enduring or inner. So the thing that makes something, like the little trait that makes it a personality disorder is that this has endured throughout probably since adolescence for the person's life. Mm -hmm. It has endured and it's highly highly internal. So it governs the inner experience. Okay. And so it's it's more pervasive in the sense of how I see myself, how I see things, how I understand relationships. So one of the 10 that's most commonly spoken about is narcissistic personality disorder. And just to be a good counselor, I'm just going to give it to you straight um, from the DSM because I don't think we do enough of that. I think right. sometimes we'll throw around these terms in a secular manner, but it actually may not be that. And so I think it's good for listeners to hear like what this actually is. Go for it. So it's a pervasive pattern of grandiosity either in my head. So I've, you know, got this fantasy going on in my head that I am far grander than I am. Hmm. And you'll see this sometimes in memes. Right. You'll see it sometimes in memes, like this kind of grand sense of a person's almost like Jesus. Okay. Or the grandiosity is in the behavior. There's a need for admiration, a tendency towards a lack of empathy, the ability Mm. to show empathy. And it begins in early adulthood. So some things we'll see is a grand sense of self-importance, exaggerating achievements and talents, and expecting to be recognized as superior. Preoccupied with fantasies of power, brilliance, ideal, love, or success. Believing that he or she is special and unique and can only be understood by certain people who are special and have high status like them. Wow. And this includes institutions. (laughs) Requires excessive admiration. Has a sense of entitlement. So unreasonable expectations especially to be treated with favor, can be exploitative in relationships, again, lack empathy, can be unwilling to recognize or identify with the feelings and needs of others, can be envious of others, and will believe people are just jealous of me. That's what's wrong here. You're just jealous of me. And then can show haughty or arrogant behavior. So So, nothing that you'd want to see in the the seminary and in the priesthood. (laughs) No. The thing with narcissistic personality disorder, in some cases, the uh, individual who is struggling with this diagnosis, they can appear quite charming. And so that that is where we kind of have to ask ourselves sometimes, especially like when we're forming for authority in the church, we've got to ask ourselves, because again, with celebrity priesthood, with the dawn of social media and celebrity priests, it adds another dimension to a superficial understanding of the priesthood. And so we've been, it becomes like, are we now with the dawn of these additional realities, are we appearing attractive to some because of the superficial way this appears, right? Right. And so I do think, you know, formators have to ask those questions and 
go beyond, you know, psyche valves and things like that. Because the only way to really get at it if someone is struggling with narcissistic personality disorder is to speak with people who've been in relationship with them. Because in some cases, like I said, they can appear quite charming. Mm -hmm. They can appear quite intelligent and impressive. So to really get at the history, you would need to, to speak with people who've been in relationship with them for a while. What can we do if we have a priest that we suspect our pastor, perhaps? I'm not saying mine. I mean, if somebody's (laughs) listening saying, you know what, that sounds a lot like my pastor. How can we keep ourselves safe and interacting with someone like that? So the important thing is if I'm dealing with somebody who I believe has narcissistic personality disorder, it's super important not to feed the need for reaction. Somebody who's struggling with narcissistic personality disorder can actually be fed by a positive or negative reaction. So I'll see sometimes, like say, like someone, you know, we're talking a lot about social media because a lot of this plays out on social media because it's a quick fix for some of the desires of these symptoms. Mm -hmm. And so if I feel like I'm engaging with someone, it would actually do you well to not argue. Right. To not comment, to not even like, to not even follow. Not respond at all. To not respond. Ignore. (laughs) Yeah. Ignore, but also like, don't even subtweet. Eat that up too. Yeah. If I had narcissistic personality disorder, I would probably be doing a search for subtweets, you know, referencing me, you know, to kind of feed that sense of grandiosity and importance and like victimhood. Like, look at all these people subtweeting about me. Um, I'm saying the truth and they're persecuting me for it. Yes. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So when interacting, one of the best things to do is like reduce engagement, especially reduce like heightened emotional responses, because that will feed some of this symptom pattern as well. So disengage as much as possible to not contribute to the sense of grandiosity. Is that something that people examine? When guys are in seminary, like they're diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. So I can tell you the kind of psyche eval I went through as a religious. The psychologist I saw for my psyche eval, she was also the one, I believe, doing that for a seminary at the time. So again, what type of eval this looks like is going to be different from diocese, diocese, seminary to seminary, clinician to clinician. But I can assure you the psyche eval that I set for, I am not quite sure if I had a personality disorder, it would have been able to pick up on that. Oh, wow. Because this psyche eval was more of that type of psyche eval where they're first, they're like testing my level of intelligence, the way I process things. You know, it's where you're playing with the blocks and doing the patterns and things like that. Right. And a small portion of the psyche eval was a life interview where this clinician only spoke to me about my life. Okay. And so the clinician did not have data from other people I'm in relationship with, like family or friends or people that I've worked with. And so with personality disorders, because of the enduring nature of it, the inner experience, you would need to interact with someone a little bit more. I would say as a clinician, there there would need to be a little bit deeper interaction and deeper evaluation to get a good sense of a personality disorder. Unless... I was mm -hmm. thinking somebody's time in formation before you take your final vows or before somebody's ordained to the transitional diaconate. Like they're living with people in seminary. It seems like there should be things that are red flags. Somebody would notice the teachers, the guys that also live there, something, I would think. But because I'm thinking somebody like that getting... Ordained, ordained and, and put in that place of authority. And I'm sure 
bishops know of seminaries that have a narcissistic personality disorder, but maybe they don't understand like what kind of spiritual damage, what kind of damage mm. that person can do to the flock, to the church. I think you were on to something there. Yeah, there's no way with the length of seminary formation, there is no way that these patterns would not expose themselves throughout the, the duration. I think that you are onto something there. <laughs> could you talk about, I mean, maybe give a quick example of like, what kind of damage could somebody with that kind of authority do? For someone who has narcissistic personality disorder, it's primarily the key thing. Like this is a priest of Jesus Christ. And so the first aspect of like the symptom makeup of that is the lack of empathy. So I just think like someone is presenting themselves in the sacrament of confession and encountering someone who, because of a mental health struggle they're having, is struggling to provide proper empathy. Mm. Or like if I'm a pastor or even as a sister, like I have a duty to consider the other. Someone who is struggling with narcissistic personality disorder will have a very difficult time considering the needs of others above themselves without treatment. And this can create deep wounds in the body of Christ because, again, people are coming there and they're making this deep connection between their sense of God and the encounter they're having in their sacramental life. Yet the person there is having a, a pretty pervasive mental health reality. Also, as I'm listening to you, I'm like, this sounds like someone that would be difficult to have a marriage with, too. Of course. Yes, absolutely. I mean, very difficult to have a marriage with this person. Are there other kind of maybe more typical, because I'm assuming narcissistic personality disorder is not like rare, is it? Is it something that's rare? It only affects the general population. It's. I looked at this the other day. The range for the general population, I think, please forgive me if I'm off, is 2 to 7% was the prevalence for the general population. But we just have to ask ourselves that question. I mean, and we can't be afraid to ask it. And it's okay if I'm wrong. Right. With the dawn of celebrity priesthood, are we attracting people who have this symptom pattern? Right. And so do we have a higher prevalence of people struggling with narcissistic personality disorder in the seminary than the prevalence in the United States? Yeah. That's a doable study. That's a doable hypothesis, and I think we've just got to ask the question, particularly with the dawn of celebrity priesthood, and particularly with how we see celebrity priesthood playing out. We have some men who have taken that platform and really leveraged it to serve the body of Christ and build up the kingdom. There are some who are doing that quite well and beautifully, yeah. Yeah. and there are some who are wreaking havoc. Indeed. And, and so how do we properly assess for this, properly accompany and properly break ties if we are, in fact, experiencing a higher prevalence of this diagnosis in our seminaries? I think they're questions that have to be asked. Right. And so I'll give a story. Once I was, we'll say, in a diocese far, far away from here, okay? Okay. <laughs> in mm -hmm. a long time, another time in life. Okay. Um, I was helping to set up for an event. And me and another woman, probably in her 40s, were carrying chairs and putting out chairs for an event. And a young man who was in the seminary happened to be there. And he came in and he sat down in one of the chairs we had just put out. And she and I were still back and forth carrying chairs, sweating. And he yeah. sat down. And I went to him and I said, you need to get up and help us. Right. And he looked at me just with the shock. 
And I thought to myself, the fact that he's even shocked that I said it, you know, I was like, there are two women walking and sweating and you not only didn't help me, but you sat down in the chair I put down. Right. I was like, what kind of home training you got? And so I think he still, this is a nice young man. We, you know, I went on to get along with him, right. but I, it's just like a little example of a story of how it's important in the formation that we understand that that divinely instituted hierarchy is predicated on service. Preach it. Yes. And so to make sure that our seminaries are permeated with that concept and don't become overly comfortable. So I have a story to share. I went to visit a particular religious community because they were having some kind of big dinner. And I brought a friend of mine who's a religious brother out of town from another community. And we were sitting there and, you know, we were there doing all the dinner, the, everything that was going on. And afterwards, when he left, he said, that's a sick religious community. Mm. I said, why do you say that? He said, didn't you notice the priest didn't do a thing? The mm. religious sisters and the religious brothers and the seminarians were serving them like they were kings. And he said they did. And I said, you know what? You're right. Yeah. And so, again, the majority of our men will come out, and I believe this, I believe the majority of our men in seminaries have servant hearts and want to serve. When we're dealing with this reality, the more comfort, the less bent towards service. And the Catholics who are struggling, who are dealing with all kinds of pains connected to their experience of their faith, it is a match. It's like a lock and a key. Mm Mm-hmm. Because they wouldn't be able to garner their following if there wasn't like a deep wound and need in the body of Christ in some way. They wouldn't be able to garner the following. Well, in the time that we have left, I want to talk about, I know you and I had briefly talked before recording about something else that could be a danger for guys in the seminary is another kind of behavior or compulsion. Could you talk about that? Yeah, so this is one that's been on my mind, and it's called obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Okay. And it's not to be mistaken with obsessive compulsive disorder, okay. you know, where I have a need, where I have a specific obsession, and I have to complete a compulsion to experience relief. This is different. Again, as a clinician, it's important for me to give it to you properly. Okay. <laughs> not my personal spin on it, Thank but the you. scientific Thank spin. You. Yeah. <laughs> so, a pervasive pattern of preoccupation with orderliness, perfectionism, and mental and interpersonal control at the expense of flexibility, openness, and efficiency, beginning by early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts. It includes a preoccupation with details, rules, lists, order, organization, schedules, to the extent that the major point of the activity is lost. I need to repeat that. A preoccupation with details, rules, order, list, organization, the proper way of doing things to the extent that the point of the activity, salvation of souls, is lost. Girl shows perfectionism that interferes with the task completion, is excessively devoted to productivity, to the exclusion of leisure activities and friendships, over conscientious, reluctant to delegate tasks, miserly with spending, rigidity and stubbornness. So they get distracted and are obsessing over those points and missing the tasks. Salvation of souls, y'all. Salvation of souls, y'all. <laughs> Serving people, y'all. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we, what we want is priests that can walk with us and, and, and minister us and 
cry with us and understand. And then I'd say, you know what? You have a crease in <laughs> in the cassock where it should be, needs to be ironed out. And so you're mm-hmm. bad. You know what I mean? And so that is a particular, that's a task really entrusted to pastors to be able to proclaim the truth and accompany at the same time. Right. Mm, yeah. And so that's a just a tremendous balance, you know, for these human men to try to hold. If I'm struggling with obsessive compulsive personality disorder, it will be an even greater task for me to hold that tension and that balance. Oh my goodness. What kind of, when you talk about treatment for these personality disorders, I'm like, what how how can you treat it? I mean, you know, that's I know we don't have that much time left, but I'm like, maybe they are priests, but maybe they shouldn't be pastors. <laughs> Maybe they need to be someplace else while they're going through their treatment and find another way for them to be priests. Because to me, it just seems like the risk to the flock, to the sheep is just too great. But maybe I'm wrong here. Yeah, no, it's hard. It's hard for me. I'm one of them hopeful Nellies. But no, the science shows us that it has been difficult for people who have personality disorders to persist in treatment. That's the science. The science is that, yes, treatment is helpful, all kinds of treatment, counseling treatment. Maybe if there's like some history of trauma, there's great trauma treatments. Cognitive behavioral therapy is great treatment for personality disorders. Some personality disorders do great with dialectical behavior therapy, but behavioral therapies are the ones that tend to treat these the best. However, the research has shown us because of the nature of the symptoms it is difficult for people who have this diagnosis to be consistent with treatment. Mm. That's that's just the that's the science of it. So I'm gonna um, beg bishops listening, get these guys off social media. <laughs> these guys that have these diagnoses, get them off social media, please. It's good for them to not be on it, and it's good for us that they're not on there. Now, whether mm. or not they'll obey, that's another story. Mm. You know mm. what I mean? But yeah. I, I just while we don't I'll be praying for these guys and I'll be praying for the bishops because that's got to be a difficult thing to deal with if they've already been ordained. I think there's things they can do before they get ordained. But afterwards it gets difficult. Yeah. Like before, Mm -hmm. maybe it's okay to say some people shouldn't be ordained. It's okay. You know what I mean? They can maybe serve in some other way. And it doesn't mean the discernment didn't work. It doesn't mean the discernment didn't work. Like they were always teaching us that information that like, just because if I discern to leave, the discernment worked. If I discern to remain and make final vows, the discernment worked. And so I think sometimes we can see departures from the seminary as as a failure, but I think that's not a proper way to view it. Gloria, I think you could do a whole podcast on how social media has impacted our sense of the church. Girl. All right, sister. That's not with me. Doing that. She said, not with me now, somebody else. But you're <laughs> but right. I think we could because, we could. again, this is a relationship. So how have people who are struggling with these diagnoses been able to garner the following that they have garnered? Mm. And that question has to be asked. It has to be explored. And the role of social media in meeting the needs that the, those populations have has got to be explored we cannot abdicate from our responsibility to do that. Well, the Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, in a new evangelization, mm. encouraged us to use all these forms of media to evangelize. Yes. Right, yes. not to aggrandize ourselves. Yes, <laughs> yes. Evangelize rather than aggrandize yourself. Mm. So that's a lot for people to think about and think about how we approach and use social media and are these things feeding the worst things in us or the better things in us? And um, we're going to pray for our bishops and also people in seminaries that they recognize that letting guys through with these diagnoses could do great spiritual damage to the body of Christ. 
and it generational doesn't help them. damage. Generational damage. And generational damage. And it doesn't help these guys get better. Thank mm-hmm. you, sister, so much for joining us and taking the time to explain these personality disorders to us. And we'll put links in the show notes for our listeners to follow up on maybe some of the resources that you have mentioned and used. So we appreciate that, sister. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Gloria. If you want to catch more episodes of the Gloria Purvis podcast, be sure to subscribe to the show on your podcast app. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. I would love to hear from you. Oh, and by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Sebastian Gomes and engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.